Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, Michael and I want to pay tribute to the memory of Bill Allen. We interviewed Bill in connection with his book on another podcast, and we learned that he passed away on June 17th after a vehicle accident. Bill was the author of Speed Trap, 80 Robberies and 50 Years, an autobiography that detailed his life of drug addiction, which took a toll not only on Bill, but on his, the lives of his family and friends. Bill didn't try to blame others for his actions or the consequences he uh, took for them. And in sharing his life story, he wanted to prevent others from making the same mistakes that he made. Bill wrote, there are many miracles in my life, some of them found within the speed traps pages. There's evidence of God, the fortitude provided by hope, and encouragement in its conclusion, simply because if I could survive the speed trap, so can others. This is in memory of William Bill Allen, loving husband, son, brother, father, and grandfather, January 1st, 1956 to June 17th, 2018. Rest in peace. Good evening and welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts and not the court of public opinion. 
We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, home of the St. Louis Cathedral, the oldest continuously used cathedral in the United States, and Michael Carnahan, podcasting from Little Rock, Arkansas, home of Central High School, a national historic site, and the place where events inspired the Beatles song, Blackbird. Thank you for joining us for Episode 11, State of Illinois versus Al Story Simon. Tonight, we're joined by Martin Pribe, a Chicago police officer and the author of Crooked City, whose work on the documentary Murder in the Park helps free Al Story Simon from prison, and William Crawford, a former reporter, writer, and legal affairs columnist for the Chicago Tribune, who's also the author of Justice Perverted, How the Innocence Project at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism Sent an Innocent Man to Prison. This is a live show, and questions and calls are always welcome, so call us at 347-989-1171. And good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Uh, Good evening, Lisa. Uh, I was just, uh, I wasn't prepared to bring them on, but I just wanted to correct you real quick before we bring our guests on. I think this is the perfect time to, you know, go ahead and say Arkansas is also the future home of the national championship baseball team. Go Hogs. Okay. I had no idea because I'm not a baseball fan. Yeah, tonight's game one of the College World Series. So, you know, I got to give the Hogs props. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, but uh, I definitely want to take a moment to, you know, talk about Bill. Uh, first time I talked to Bill, I remember, was in a CC's uh, pizza. Uh, Brad texted me and was like, hey, we got this guy coming on, and sent me the comment, and then sent me his phone mm-hmm. number to arrange everything as he tends to, uh, as we tend to do on that show. So, uh, definitely a crazy moment, especially after meeting Bill and speaking with Bill for a little bit that day. But I will, uh, without further ado, we'll go ahead and bring on these guests. Both men are now All right. Uh, here we go. Great. Good evening, gentlemen. Good How evening. are you? Thank you Good for to be us. here. Thank you guys for joining us tonight. Uh, I just want to mention this particular show was scheduled and canceled at the last minute twice so I do appreciate you guys for agreeing to come on after so many uh, snafus in getting this show on the air but it's a really important story um, to to talk about especially in the climate of uh, of journalism these days. And so, uh, Mr. Crawford, you had an opening overview, which I think would be really helpful to everyone. And I I have to tell you, um, you know, Marty and I have been chasing this thing for years. Um, It's a very complicated story. It's a long story. It's got twists and turns you would not believe. Um, So I think it's very critical for listeners to the extent that happens it, it, it's key that they get, you know, kind of a nutshell view of what the hell happened here. Uh, it's it, it, it's kind of a, a two-decade-long unfolding of um, an egregious 
um, uh, wrongdoing that occurred here in Cook County. So uh, with that, let me just give you the brief opening chapters of a book that I wrote about this, and Marty wrote his own. So the statement goes like this. The triggering event of this upending of justice, certainly one of the most egregious in the recent history of the Cook County court system in Chicago, took place on August 15, 1982, around 1 o'clock in the morning. And this is only a one-page statement, so I'm not going to bore everybody. Um, So it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and that is when Anthony Porter entered the pool area of Chicago's Washington Park. He ascended the bleachers at the north end of the pool, pulled out a loaded 38 pistol, and fatally shot two people, Marilyn Green, the mother of two toddlers, and her fiancé, Jerry Hillard, both very young people. Anthony Porter um, makes good his escape after the shootings. Police arrive, and the two victims are transported to two nearby hospitals where they are pronounced dead. By later that morning, uh, Chicago homicide detectives have rounded up six young men who were in the pool at the time and told police they witnessed one or another, another aspect of the shootings and that Porter was the assailant. With that evidence, police obtained a warrant for Porter's arrest. 48 hours after the shootings, Porter, family members in tow, turns himself in at police headquarters. He is taken before a judge who orders the prisoner held without bond. A year later, a jury is sworn in and a three-day trial conducted at the conclusion of which the jury finds Porter, who did not take the stand, by the way, guilty on all charges. A post-trial hearing is held during which prosecutors produced additional testimony convincing the presiding judge to sentence Porter to death. Porter spends, and I'm almost there, Porter spends the next 18 years on death row awaiting the executioner. At one point in 1998, Porter is 50 hours from being put to death when anti-death penalty advocates and lawyers convince Illinois' highest court to delay the execution until a hearing can be held to determine whether or not Porter is of such limited mental capacity that his sentence should be committed to life. That is December 1998, when Porter is returned to Cook County for the competency hearing. That also is when David Protess, a once heralded, now disgraced former professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, four of his students, a private eye, and others jump into the case ultimately to prove, in their view, that Porter, in fact, is innocent of the 1982 double homicide at the pool. Two more paragraphs. A year later, to the astonishment of many, and because of corrupted and phony evidence engineered by protests and his cohorts, Porter is declared a free man and ultimately is granted a pardon by then-Illinois Governor George Ryan. Not only that, also to the astonishment of many, a man by the name of Elstory Simon, again because of protests and the others' interference in the local judicial system, steps forward in 1999 and out of the blue pleads guilty to the dual homicide committed by Porter. Jumping forward and opening uh, this narrative up for questions 
let me just add this. El Story Simon, following 15 years of wrongful incarceration for a double homicide he did not commit, today is himself a free man. And just days ago, when a settlement uh, against Northwestern in protest for the improper meddling in the Cook County judicial system was awarded an undisclosed amount of money that probably uh, ranges in the millions of dollars. The undisclosed settlement arose out of a federal lawsuit Simon had filed two years ago, which had sought $40 million in damages against the two defendants. And there you have it. And and that's, the, you know, one one third of the story. Yes, it it is. It's a complicated, twisted, turned uh, turned story. Um, and I think that kind of covers uh, a part of it. Now, one of the things I want to go back to is the witnesses uh, to the shooting of Marilyn Green and Jerry Hilliard. Uh, right. There were six. And um, what can you tell me about uh, about each of them? William Taylor being the first witness and the only one who was interviewed by Protus and his uh, students, as I recall. So, 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 so um, the police. I got to tell you, you know, they they basically wrapped up this case in forty eight hours or less. Um, they they raced to the pool, obviously. Um, and they wound up with uh, at least at least six witnesses who had been in the pool, had seen um, Porter in the pool, which he denied at his trial, by the way. Um, they saw him uh, ascend the, the, the stairs, if I, as I told you, and shoot the two victim, victims. Two of those six testified at his trial, which was one year after... 1982, when the shootings occurred, as in late 1983. The two witnesses, uh, one of whom is now deceased, um, you know, basically told the jury, you know, what they had seen that night. They were in the pool. They saw him shoot the right. shoot the, uh, the two victims. He and does not take Porter, the stand. I'm sorry? Yeah, and Porter had robbed Henry Williams, correct? Yes, yes, you know, and... <laughs> It's this thing is just it goes on endlessly. But yes, the, the, the open and shut aspect of this case was that right. when he first came into the pool that night, the first thing he did is hold up Williams. He put a pistol at his head and said, "Give me all your money." And and Williams happened to be in the pool because he was swimming and trying to cool off late at night. And by mm-hmm. by the way, the police, the police and the, the city kind of allowed this as long as there was no 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 problem after the pools had, had closed in all the parks. Right. Anyway. Right. Uh, he he grabs the three dollars out of his pocket and he says, "You're a lucky man tonight." Then he turns around, climbs the stairs, and shoots the two victims. And yes, Williams was key at his 1983 trial uh, with the testimony that that he had been held up. Uh, shortly before the shootings occurred. Right. Let, let, let me chime in here with one one point that I, I think is the crux of the case, and I think your your question gets to it, Lisa. That it, the 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 detective, the police, got the two witnesses, Taylor and Williams, 
Henry Taylor, they got the two main witnesses who testified in court at right at the crime scene, right there. Right. But right. But then, but then the the state's attorney did not want to approve charges without going back to the park the following day and walking through the crime. So they right. took the witnesses and the two main detectives and the prosecutor, and they all went back to the the park and they walked through it. While they were at the park, the two detectives r- ran into some other people there, and they went up and asked them, "Did you do you know anything about the case?" And they they admitted that they saw one of them admitted that he saw the murder, and these these detectives or these these witnesses provided the exact same narrative of the shooting that the two witnesses discovered the night of the shooting. So right. the the possibility that two separate groups the the possibility that two <laughs> the, the possibility You've heard this before. The, two, the the possibility that two groups of witnesses a day apart who didn't know each other could provide an extremely detailed, exact narrative of the shooting was to the detectives, uh, uh, you know, you never get that much evidence in a shooting shooting like this. So that's why the detectives felt so certain they had the right guy, and they did have the right guy. Right, right. And I'm sure the prosecutor was, you know, happy to have that many witnesses and, and to have the corroboration among the different witnesses. And I also want to bring up, too, something that was mentioned by um, Protus and the students about how I think William Taylor was initially reluctant to give any kind of statement. But you've got Anthony Porter's uh, uh, reputation within that community. There's no wonder that William Taylor initially didn't want to get involved. Oh, and didn't no want to be the one that. to give any, any, you know, useful information to police. Uh, no um, question. But he that. ended up doing the right thing. Uh, so, Bill, Bill, you want to address that? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, you're right. Anthony Porter was a stone cold gang thug. He was an enforcer for an extremely violent gang. This was a very violent neighborhood, and, you know, what a lot of readers or listeners, some might not know, some might know, in in some big cities like Chicago, the gangs have tremendous power, and when when one of their gang members gets arrested or goes to court, they start working on the witnesses. At first, they might bribe them, uh, but if they have to, they'll kill them, or or they'll kill a family member. So, So William Taylor... You know he was he was very worried about gang retaliation, but he was also a you know a decent human being and and you know everybody in this neighborhood they, nobody had a lot of good feelings towards Anthony Porter's you know everybody was terrified of this guy. Right, right, and 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 you know, and again this gets you know it becomes nuanced, but another aspect of this whole thing is that a year after he was arrested and charged with a double homicide, a jury is impaneled and a, and a, a trial is held to determine whether he in fact 
pulled the trigger and killed these two people, uh, or whether he's innocent and he's been framed or whatever. Um, so they have the trial. And the witnesses that we have previously described are, are the star witnesses for the state, and they say what they say. Namely, I was in the pool, I saw him, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Porter does not take the stand. And um, under the U.S. Constitution and, and uh, every uh, other legal uh, whatever, um, he has that right. So he puts on an alibi witness at the trial. The trial goes for three days. It's a jury trial. Um, uh, the evidence for the state is overwhelming because we got Williams and his co-guy in there saying what they saw that night. Um, so now um, uh, Anthony Porter puts on his alibi witness, a guy by the name of Fat Luke. So Fat Luke takes a stand and says, hey, man, uh, I can tell you right now, uh, we and and uh, Porter did not uh, pull that trigger that night because we were all in a playground of the Robert Taylor Homes, a huge public housing project in Chicago. No longer exists, but at the time it was enormous, like thirty or 40,000 people. And we were in the black hole, as he put it, and we were smoking marijuana, drinking wine all night long. So if we're in the play lot smoking marijuana and drinking wine all night long, how in the hell could he have pulled the trigger uh, and shot these two people um, at 1 o'clock in the morning, which which was the state's case? Um, right. So the, on cross-examination, uh, the, the prosecutor says, um, are you a member of a gang? He said, yeah, I am. And he said, uh, what's your rank in the gang? And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here. And he says, well, you know, I ain't no chief or nothing, but, uh, you know, I do what, it, what needs to be done for the gang. And he said, well, what does that mean, Mr. Witness, uh, Fat Luke? And he says, well, whatever needs to be done. Does that mean fighting? Yes, it does. Does that mean shooting people to death? Yes, ma'am. I mean, that's his alibi witness. And right, now, right. 19 years later, following his conviction and sentenced to death, he's a free man. He's walking the street. Right. But, and weren't, uh, didn't he have some family members that alibied him that he was at his mom's? Oh, oh the, I think alibis, it was one of those... I, I the, the alibis are so clouded. When he was first arrested, <laughs> he said one thing. Um, right. And then one witness during the trial got on the stand and... and, and uh, contradicted what Fat Luke said about being in the play lot. She said he was in the house all night long. I right, mean, it just right. it was crazy. And and how this man right. ever got loose is beyond... Well, I think part of the problem was Dick Devine didn't want the bad publicity. That, You're right. That, that, that was certainly an element. There is no question... He was a graduate of, of the law school there. Um, he was a stunning uh, student at the school. He was the editor of the uh, law bulletin at the school. Um, and he was, you know, he was uh, part of the Mayor Daly crowd. And mm -hmm. suddenly all of this erupts. And, and one, you know, I don't want to get too heavy into this, but one has to note that Porter was prosecuted and convicted when 
Richard Daly uh, Jr. Um, was the state's attorney. So now, years later, we got Dick Devine, who is a Daly uh, uh, colleague. Yeah, um, he's now the state's attorney. Now, if 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 he's going to cave in to Northwestern and say, "All right, let's open this up and look what happened." on this wrongful conviction that happened under Mayor Daley. Um, you know, the question is, what, did a call come in to, to Devine's office from the top man at, on the fifth floor saying, hey, settle this case, and uh, I don't want to be uh, uh, cross-examined during a deposition uh, about what I did or did not do when I was state's attorney at the time. I don't know if that makes any sense, right. but honestly, guys, and it's yeah, a good story. For you know, for from everything I've read and seen, I mean, there wasn't any prosecutorial misconduct or any anything. As you said, it was an open and shut, you know, slam dunk, literally Absolutely. smoking gun case, with the exception well, of. Porter's accomplice, who was with him, and who was never identified. He was never well, identified, and he was well, never charged. Um, yeah. But here's another key point in all of this: um, the pre-indictment of Porter, the trial of Porter, the many, many, many years-long post-conviction appeals of Porter for his conviction of this mm-hmm. people. Guess what? Never once, never once, until about seven or eight years later, never once in the pretrial, the trial, post-trial, is the name of El Story Simon ever mentioned by anybody. Right, right. Well, let, let, let me uh, jump in for just a quick comment. Lisa. That, I, I think your question about the, you know, uh, divine and why divine let Porter out, uh, you know, there's certain central themes to this story. And one of them is, is media corruption. Uh, that uh, Before I'd like to say that, I think one of the reasons that Bill and I and so many people in Chicago, police and prosecutors, are so attracted to this, you know, are so find this story so compelling is because it's not an isolated incident. There is this very very powerful movement in Chicago to release uh, murderers and rapists. And uh, dozens and dozens have been released, making hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's my contention, and I believe Bill agrees with me, that a lot of these are as equally suspicious as the Porter cases. And so for these cases and for this Porter, what you're talking about, about why Devine made this decision – and Bill knows this better than anybody. Is he divine was faced with this media tsunami of reporters right. who were really acting as activists and did not dig into any of the actual facts of the case, and they championed the Northwestern narrative that Porter was innocent. And clearly, this overwhelmed Divine's office. But it was really a major shift in journalism in Chicago, and I think around the country. And I think Bill is sort of representative of the old way of journalism that was based on investigating the facts. You know, Bill won the Pulitzer Prize 
and he's a very highly regarded journalist in Chicago. But, you know, right around the 1999, 98, when all these activist journalists came over, especially into the Chicago Tribune, they just attacked any prosecutor who disagreed with them on what was called a wrongful conviction case. They attacked right. them, you know, viciously, and they still do today. And they've attacked Bill and me viciously. <laughs> well put. Correct. That And that's actually, it's not limited to Chicago. Uh, I've seen it in my uh, research and discussion of the West Memphis Three case. I've seen it with the Rodney Reed case out of Texas. I mean, there is, there's a trend in media now. It's not journalism. It's not reporting the facts. It is opinion and advocacy. You're absolutely right. And, yep. and so you're not getting a whole story. You're getting the part of the story that the person writing it wants you to have or the facts that they yeah. want you to have and want you to make a decision on. And it's on both sides, on a on a pro guilt and a pro innocence uh, side. It's not a balanced, equitable reporting. Well, you, you know, on that point, I, I would say this: had any journalist, a true journalist, gone to the underlying, and I've said this so many times, I get a headache, gone to the underlying sworn record um they would have concluded and seen in fact immediately that um El Story Simon had been railroaded right and that the, the true killer had been freed but you know what right. um in this era look let me put it to you this way when i was at the tribune in the heyday like i left in the mid 90s long time ago, there were 800 people in the Tribune Tower, a fabled building on, on North Michigan Avenue. Um, today, there are 200. And guess what? Um, they just moved out of the Chicago Tribune Tower, an iconic building in Chicago. I mean, it's like the Hancock. It's like the Empire State Building in Chicago. They moved out of it, and they're now renting space in a small uh, office building just south of the fabled Chicago Tribune Tower. My point is, there is not the time, nor is there the um, the funds to underwrite extensive investigations. Now, in this case, mm -hmm. what what somebody would have to have done is leave the Chicago Tribune Tower when they were still there and go out to a suburban office. And they would have had to have spent probably two or three reporters would have had to have spent three or four months. The Tribune does not have those resources, nor do they have the inclination to even to even try and determine this. But I am telling you, there are four documents underlying this two-decade proceedings. Two, four documents, not that not not that many pages. Had they looked at those four documents they would have realized immediately that the wrong had been committed. But uh, right. it just doesn't happen anymore. And can I tell well, you, uh, I just want sure. to say, in Chicago, in Chicago, the, in Chicago the, the, the imbalance is all on the side of the left. The, the, this, 
the, 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 the movement that took shape in this case and all the others, it's a, it's a very progressive movement. Chicago's a one-party uh, political party, governs everything. And it's a very corrupt democratic machine, and the the the, the progressive uh, the progressive movement is rooted in this wrongful conviction movement in Chicago, and it's a tremendous funding source for them. They they make tens and hundreds of millions of dollars off these. I mean, it's one lunatic claim after another that this guy. Right. You know, they come up with these stories like you wouldn't believe, and and they they. They they have so much power that the courts are intimidated by them, and it's, and it's really devastating for us as police officers because they've painted the police with this dire uh, paintbrush that we're all these racist thugs going out just you know coercing anybody to uh, to take the rap for a, a murder case. Well, just because he's black or for whatever reason, right? It doesn't make right. Any sense. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, and I think uh, it's kind of it, it's kind of ironic to me these quote journalism students who go to a park seventeen years after the fact right. and look around and say, oh well, the witnesses could not have seen what they claimed to have seen because of these uh, what was it uh, canopies put up in the bleacher area. Right. Yeah, right. Well, had they looked at a picture of the crime scene, they would have seen the canopies weren't there in 1982. Yeah. But that's well, their well, whole well, basis. Well, 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 well following, <laughs> let me just interrupt here. Following on that score is this. Um, as you know, and the listeners haven't heard this yet, but there was a grand jury, a, a non-indicting grand jury that was impaneled um, after Northwestern had, you know, done what it had done. Um, and this uh, grand jury was impaneled to inquire what in the hell happened that night um, in 1982 when these shootings occurred. Who pulled the trigger? They pull uh, six witnesses in, again, who saw the shooting. Um, the students at the time in uh, 1998 and 1999 know that um, uh, there are six other witnesses out there other than the one alleged recantation that they have gotten um, who had seen Porter pull the the trigger. And and the the, uh, state's attorney who's conducting the grand jury says, well, you knew that there were five other witnesses out there who had seen Porter pull the trigger. Yes, we did know that. Did you know where to find them? Yes, we did. Did you know their names? Yes, we did. Did you go out and talk to them? You got one guy with right. an alleged recantation. Did you go out and talk to them? And and you know what one student said? He says, hey, no, we didn't. Uh, and they asked why. And he said, well, you know, this was a this was a class that I was taking, and the class lasted two months. And, and you know, the... the the class was going to be over, so we didn't have time to talk to you. Come on. We didn't have time right. to talk to the other five witnesses? I mean, it's just a, it's lunacy. Yeah. Anyway. And and, and that's, uh, you know, that is the, the court of public opinion thinks that if they read something that, quote, 
uh, torpedoes the state's original case in a, a newspaper article or a, an article on the Internet, that that means the person's got to be innocent. Absolutely. Even though the information that allegedly, quote, torpedoes the state's case has been presented in a legal proceeding and a judge has found it not to be reliable or credible. Well, let me chime in and say that you, you hit the nail on the head there, Lisa, because what they do in Chicago, and this whole wrongful conviction movement around the country, it started here. It started with Northwestern. It, it, it all goes back to the 60 riots and 68 riots. It's a long story, but you're absolutely right. What they do is they take these cases out of the courtroom and the rules of evidence, and they move it into this very carefully packaged media and public relations campaign. And they, they take like the slightest, what they say is an anomaly, one, one anomaly. For example, the Porter case, they said that, well, uh, uh, Porter was right-handed, but the, but the witness said he, one of the witnesses said he fired with his left hand. So that doesn't make any sense. You'll, you'll read this stuff and you'll read the, the, the newspaper and they say, why would, you know, why would he fire with his left hand? Well, there's a million reasons why he could have fired. I mean, it, 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 means, it means absolutely nothing. But they'll take one little anomaly like that. Right. And they'll blow it up into like this huge thing. And the reporters will just pound it and pound it. And you're absolutely right. They take it out of the courtroom and into the room of public opinion. And here you get back to the media corruption. Because the, the, these right. reporters many of whom graduated from Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, they're just so filled with the possibility of, wow, I could get an innocent man out of prison. And some of them are filled with this historical narrative, more like a myth mythology, that, oh, the police are just, you know, terrible guys at the core, and we got to, we, you know, we got to go after them. They're really, they're fervently anti-police. And so you're right. absolutely right that that's what happened. So, and I think well, you, you see it, you see it with a lot of cases. Again, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been researching the Rodney Reed case for the last couple of years in Texas, and they continue to raise quote evidence that has been considered by the courts and rejected by the courts. But in exactly. current articles, they will say. There is this evidence left at the crime scene that implicates the woman's fiance when that is not the case at all. Yes. So it's a lot of misrepresentation as well as um, recycling old news. Yes. I, I, I'm so. very suspicious that this is what's happening. I haven't looked at it closely, but. I think that's what's happening in this making of a murderer. You know, though, I, I, I think that case is real dirty too. But we don't need to get into all that right now. Yeah, and yeah. and Cyril Adnan Syed. Yeah, it is. It's 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 taking these things into court of public opinion and presenting only one side, and then representing it as having quote solved the case yes yes uh, but but you know again um i'm with marty on this one um it's the lack 
of vigor, manpower, um, monetary commitments to dig in to what really happened. I'm telling you, you know, I, I, yeah. I was at the Tribune for 24 years, and I was there when, you know, they had an absolute ironclad um, grip on uh, suburban circulation in, in the Midwest. Um, I mean, you used to be able to fly to, you know, Miami from Chicago, and the following morning you'd get a Chicago Tribune delivered to your front door if you wanted it. And believe mm-hmm. me, that is all gone, and so have the resources. So this, this so- vigor and this, and, and, and this, and this uh, financing of, of these lengthy investigations no longer exists. So right. somebody from Northwestern calls up and says, hey, we've got some new information on the latest you know, wrongful conviction. Yeah, you go to your editor and you tell them, they said, run with it. But they don't look at the underlying documents. I mean, that's, that's my huge complaint. But Bill, right. but Bill, here's the thing. Here's the thing about that, though. But we, we and other people brought. We brought Bill. Bill Crawford is the one who broke this story, and he he did the research that should have been done. He did mm-hmm. it on his own in re, his retirement, and he brought it to the Tribune. He brought it to the Chicago media, and what did they do? They ignored it and or vilified. Pilloried. They, and, and they, thank, they, they thank you for that, Marty. They attacked his reputation. They attacked him. So it's not just a question of manpower. It's a deeply, deeply egregious and despicable bias in the media that is Agreed. just childish. It's, it's, it's really, really depraved. And, you know, if, if, you know, if it was just a question of not enough money, they would have said, my God. And then when you, we presented the media with the fact that they, you know, at the very least they got this wrong, at the very worst they were colluding, and all they've done is try and destroy our reputation. That's all. Right, right. But we keep winning in court. You know, one legal proceeding after another that reviews this case is like, holy smoke, something's. And the reason they don't, in my opinion, the reason they don't even want to acknowledge that this case is is dirty is because once they acknowledge that this case is dirty, a whole world opens up where a bunch of them, you know, if, if, a, cop, if a cop did what, pro, what, what, what these Northwestern investigators did, they would go back and look at every case he ever worked on. Correct. And they won't do that. They won't do that with these Northwestern cases. They won't go back Correct. and say, hey, are some of the other ones dirty? Even though there's over, there's all this similar identical evidence in other cases that the same thing might have happened, they won't touch it. So right. there's something more right. egregious than just finances here. And, well, and well Mar- Marty, you, 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 you make a good point there, and and well put again. But but uh, addressing your. Uh, um, opinion here, um, not opinion, your your statement. Um, a, a good point is that um, about a week ago, Northwestern University and its once heralded uh, Medill's professor of journalism settled um, with El Story Simon, uh, who had brought a $40 million wrongful uh, incarceration lawsuit against them three of them actually, 
um, but settled with Northwestern and protests, um, certainly not for $40 million, but but for an undisclosed amount of money. Um, but the point being that um, um, they they just could not withstand what was to come um, it had this thing gone to court. Right. Anyway. Well, hey, that would be – it would become public record. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Let me, let me jump on this, Bill. It, it, there is a protective order on the case. So the, the, the discovery that it took place up until the settlement has it, it, been protected. But I, I mm-hmm. just want to point out a thing, and I think Bill will – you know, this case was so huge in Chicago. This Porter exoneration, it, it ended the death penalty in Illinois. And the governor at the time, a governor who was just about to go to prison himself on corruption, he became the champion of this movement based on this Porter case. And in 2003, he let four guys out of prison off death row, four guys. And and it was the first time in American history that a governor pardoned people with no new evidence of their innocence. He just, there, there was no legal proceeding that ever indicated these four guys were innocent. And he just right. went ahead and said, I'm letting them out of prison. So, I mean, this right. case opened up the floodgates for this movement. And the, 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 the media just doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that it may be they are the ones who are the most corrupt, not the police. Or they're, you know, it's more, it, they're equally corrupt. If there is corruption, there is Small pockets, not in Chicago. but not no, and and I I agree, but yeah, they are. I mean, they're doing everything they accuse police of having done to obtain the conviction. Exactly. I was raised two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah. Well, as Bill so you can't out, say, well, the police do that, so why can't I? And didn't Celino appear on like sixty minutes, and when he was confronted about. The the actor showing the tape to Al Story Simon and coercing Al Story Simon. He's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, well, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, he. I, I didn't see the 60 Minutes deal, but I'll tell you, he was interviewed by Chicago Magazine, owned by the Chicago Tribune, and he at one point asked about the uh, the uh, confession that he obtained. Um, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's damn close to the to uh, li- literal. He says, um, "We pushed him to the edge; he couldn't recover um, to get the confession." Now, had mm-hmm. a defense attorney, and by the way, that's another person who's involved in this thing. But 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 had had that defense attorney raised this issue. Um, at the very beginning, when Elstory Simon was was uh, arrested, saying, you know, we're going to take this confession to court to determine whether or not it's legal, it was never done. The defense attorney Correct. accepted. Okay. Well, you know, and that's that's to me because of my experience and what I've done for the last twenty something years. That is the most egregious thing to me is that Jack Rimland, a friend of Cialino, 
takes on not, Al not, not only a case. friend, he, he rented office space from Cialino. Correct. Well, so he so he had you know not only the friendship but a but, uh, but here, financial here, thing. Let me just say one thing. Entanglement. Um, um, so he obtains Cialino obtains the forced confession, the false confession, um, the curious confession from El Story, who's coming off a night of booze mm-hmm. and, and, and other stuff, uh, early in the morning. And he get after he gets the gets him to agree to, to confess, he calls up Rimland, who's in Chicago. Right. Uh, he's in Milwaukee, and he's at it's a rundown home. It's 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 in the middle of the winter, and he says, "Hey, I got a great case for you. Get up here right now. I want you to represent uh, uh, El Story Simon." He gets in a car and comes up. When's the last time you saw a Chicago defense attorney get into a car and drive from Chicago to Milwaukee on a cold winter day? When when your client is penniless, has no money, and and can't pay you a dime, I mean it doesn't right. happen. And and right. he's also a renter of, of Cialino's. Right. And and he, when Al Story Simon did try to recant that confession, Rimland said, "We've got authorities from Milwaukee. They want you for a murder." Precisely. I mean that's not you know that's. I can't understand why Anita Alvarez did not did not report Rimland at that point because she looked at everything with Rimland and, and Simon. And I mean, you know, of course he's gonna stick with the story because he's got Jack Rimland threatening him with the death penalty in Wisconsin. Precisely. For a crime another crime he didn't commit. But 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 you, but he also see, said Rimland also said I'm sorry. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on, Bill. I just want to say, Lisa, you're a very good reader. You really grasp this case very well. I agree. Thank you. I I that's what I, I do. I'm a paralegal, so I um and I spent a lot of time and I also read the uh the appellate opinions for Porter's civil case and uh I think his original conviction and then the different uh cases related to Mr. Simon's civil case. So, yeah, there are facts galore. You just have to know how to find them. But thank you. I appreciate that. And like I said, to me, that's the most egregious thing, is Jack Rimland such, you know, such an egregious ethical violation. Well, well, but here's what I do not understand. He's standing... And there's another person involved here, and I don't know that I want to get into that because, you know, <laughs> there's too much going on right now. But there were four principles in all of this. There were many, but there were, the principles were four in number. Um, the prosecutor, uh, who had just come out of the grand jury four months earlier and heard six witnesses say that um, – they were in the pool that night and Porter pulled career. Okay, he then yeah. four months later, the same prosecutor appears before the sentencing judge, and the sentencing judge says, "Well, you know, we, we have a change of plea here, and in accordance with the rules of a change of plea, I have to ask um, the state what would have happened had this thing actually gone to court." And this prosecutor, who four months or five months earlier had heard 
these six witnesses come in and say that Porter was in the pool and they saw one aspect or another of the shootings, he tells the sentencing judge, um, Your Honor, we would have called three witnesses who were in that pool that night. And he names three of the six that he had heard five months earlier say that Porter pulled the trigger. So right, he's lying. Right. He's friggin' lying. And then Remland does the same thing. And and getting back to your point on the guy from Wisconsin, he calls him in. He says, Your Honor, um, this is the defense attorney. Your Honor, we've got another witness um, who we'd like to call uh, had this thing gone to trial. And so he said, Your Honor, I want you to meet uh, Fred Brown from, from Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Um, so he comes in. And, and and the sentencing judge, who I used to know very well, is now deceased, he looks down at the guy and he says, hey, Fred, you know, you know, I used to be up that way. Uh, how's Charlie doing? He's doing fine. He says, all right, what do you have to do to add the, to these proceedings? And he says, Fred Brown says, Your Honor, um, it has been alleged that El Story Simon, um, in addition to his current problems right here in the court, uh, it's been alleged that he also pulled the trigger and shot a guy dead up in Milwaukee in such and such a year. And he goes on to say, we have no evidence that he pulled the trigger. And and Rimland had told Simon that if you do not plead guilty to this case, we're going to bring down um, the Wisconsin people in the other case, and you're going to go to you're going to get uh, the death penalty. The point right. is. This guy comes down, and he adds nothing to anything. I mean, I just, right. it's insanity. It's nuts. Right. <laughs> it is. Um, I, that's, I mean, that's, uh, the, uh, your defense attorney threatening you with criminal charges in another state when his job is supposed to keep you from any criminal charges. Well, but, but the most importantly is he's challenged the confession. And that confession mm-hmm. would have been tossed out the earliest window. And I, I think, um, well, Bill says this is a nuanced story. He's right. And, and you know, Bill and I come, came, came at this case from two different points of view. Bill came at it from a journalist, and, he, you know, he wrote this beautiful article about it that first piqued everybody's interest. But I came at it as a cop. And so I, I, I interviewed all the cops that worked the case. And everything I interviewed with the cops uh, m- matched what Bill was saying 100%, but then added to it for my own. And I, I think one of the central issues that happened in this is, in, you know, when Porter got out of prison, he filed the big lawsuit. And he, 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 he claimed the, defend, the detective framed him. And, you know, what did the detectives care who killed these people? You know, why would they want to right. find the wrong guy? They, they never asked that question. But anyway, these when, when Porter got out and they reviewed the case, they realized that, hey, uh, if, if they settle with Porter on this, they're probably going to start going into the prisons and getting other guys to make the same accusations so they can get out and make money. That, that's how this works. Once they get one right. guy out – they go back and look at all of his cases, and they hang them all on the detective. So the detectives yeah. had just retired, and they, they, were, they were like, there's no way we're going to settle this case. We want to take it to trial. And they had to be very forceful to get the city attorneys 
to take it to, to trial. And they eventually, the city farmed it out to a, a private attorney who was going to settle, but the detectives went over and they, they literally, you know, forced their way into the office and said, you have to come to the crime scene and walk through it and look at these papers because Porter did it. And he didn't want to, the detective didn't want to go, but he said, okay. So he went down right. there and he walked through it. And after a couple hours, he said, my God, Porter did do it. So he walks into court in 2005 and he doesn't argue that the cops did nothing wrong. He goes in there and he retries Porter and he tells the jury, this guy did it and he won and he, and Porter got nothing. This was 2005. Now, Elsewhere yeah. Simon could have been released weeks after that civil trial. But once again, the media, it rather, the, in particular, this one columnist in, for the Chicago Tribune, Eric Zorn, they doubled down and, and, and attacked the, uh, the attorney for daring to declare that Porter was, was guilty, even though he had just proved it in court. So Elstory Simon could have got out of prison in 2005. But right. even, even to the trial, once again, this gets back to your theme of the court of public opinion or the, the courtroom itself. You know, once again, he was proven guilty in a civil trial, and still nothing changed. Yes. That is one aspect of uh, that civil trial that Porter brought against the city. Um, I think they were asking for $24 million or something like that. But they have, and, and, and Marty nailed it on this one, I mean, he, he Porter was essentially retried in the civil case which he had brought against the city for $24 million for his wrongful mm-hmm. incarceration. And huh. um, he's essentially reconvicted in the civil trial. And the jury comes back, and they said, we're not going to give the guy a dime, okay? Now, they all run up to a former federal prosecutor, now a, a lawyer in private practice, um, former good uh, friend of mine. Um, he was assigned to defend the city in this case. And after the jury came back and said, we're not going to give him a goddamn dime, excuse me, um, um a, a journalist from the Chicago Tribune, so-called, uh, ran up to um, the defense attorney and said, how in the world could the jury not award this man who was at one point um, 54 hours away, or I think it was 54 hours away from being um, um, electrocuted or, or put to, the, to death for a crime he didn't commit? And Walter Jones, the private attorney that had been hired by the city of Chicago, looked across the courtroom, pointed his finger at uh, Porter, and he said, because the man who pulled the trigger that night was not Elstory Simon. It was a man sitting right over there, Porter. Um, right. And, 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 and the Tribune came up with a story the next day, and, and Eric Zorn, uh, the columnist, came up with stories that, that didn't even match what had happened. I mean, it was right. just, I don't I get very tired of this. <laughs> it is. Uh, and, and, yeah, Walter Jones, I mean, his, his work was brilliant in that because it's not necessarily that he retried the murder case, but he put on 
enough evidence that the jury could not find that the police had no probable cause to arrest or suspect Porter. And right. it was a brilliant strategy. He, he um, did, Lisa, and, and, and in doing that, they went over every witness, every mm-hmm. cop. They, went, they found new witnesses. I mean, they had the case airtight. Right. All right, gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break, um, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. Michael. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. talk about uh, David Protus, Paul Cialino, Rimland, and the rest of the bit players in this drama uh, okay. that we've been talking about with the Al Story Simon case. Now, David Protus, um, what was his background as far as well, quote uh, journalism? I'll tell, I'll, tell, I'll tell you this. David Protest was born and raised in Brooklyn, well, most of, much of his life in Brooklyn. As his folks moved out to Long Island, he comes to Chicago. Um, he's a, an assiduous student. Um, he's working for the Better Government Association, a not-for-profit uh, organization here in Chicago that's kind of legendary, and they look for wrongdoing in private and public uh, activities. Uh, so he was an investigator for them, um, and he went on to be, get a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. But uh, he and I worked I can't tell you how many cases, we not cases, but stories we worked on um, in the early 70s. He was a BGA investigator, Better Government Association. I was a 
investigative reporter, blah blah blah. And we and we got along fine. He was a great guy. I really liked him. He was funny and humorous, blah blah blah. So he goes on. He gets his PhD. Um, then he slowly grows through this entire movement that Marty has described, um, and becomes this you know stellar uh, leading. Um, uh, investigative uh, journalist at, at that uh, Northwestern. And Northwestern is making millions off of his work, and the students are lining up a mile long to get into his programs, uh, and he's untouchable. Anyway, that's that's his background. Rimland was kind of a um, uh, uh, small to medium-level uh, criminal defense attorney. Um, I, I sort of knew him at one point. Never any big cases, never a, a major kind of guy. Um, and uh, and Cialino was kind of a, uh, um, well, he's a private eye. He went to something like, you know, 15 or 16 uh, uh, junior colleges trying to get a degree. He finally got an associate's degree, and uh, he wound up becoming a private detective. And he got, he got uh, hammered by by uh, state investigators uh, who control that industry, the private eye industry in, in uh, Illinois, a couple of times. One was he, he took $1,000 from a woman he was representing when she should have gotten the money. The other one was he was practicing as a private eye uh, without being properly licensed. So here's the thing. I, I, let me tell you something. I have taught... Um, some years ago, at every major university in Chicago. Um, that would be DePaul, that would be Roosevelt, that would be Loyola, that would be Northwestern University, Medill School of Journalism, both uh, uh, graduate and postgraduate um, uh, journalism teacher. Um, and the thing was, it was very clear at the university, and I'm talking 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you couldn't become a full-time professor. You couldn't work for the university unless you had a master's degree. I don't have a master's mm-hmm. degree, but guess what? I, I, had a, I, I had a Pulitzer Prize and several other awards uh, as an investigative reporter, and they waived it, and they put me in a classroom. Here's Cialino. Right. He's gone to, uh, again, 15, 14, 12, I don't know what it was, junior colleges, and he can't, and all he can get after 12 tries is an associate degree and he winds up becoming he was a de facto professor at at, uh, Northwestern he was teaching journalism classes and that's the disconnect for me that's not journalism you know (laughs) I'm sorry going going and sticking your nose into criminal cases and deciding that somebody's innocent and then gathering facts that you no that's supported. That's not journalism. Journalism is writing for a paper, investigating your stories, and then reporting on them to the public. Right. Well, I mean, they uh, didn't report. Know, I mean, the journalism students didn't write any articles. They wrote memos to defense attorneys. Good point. And I recall that Protus lied about those memos to the defense attorneys. Yes. Yes, and that's where and that's he why, North ultimately that's ways. why he was fired. He not only lied about <laughs> him, he altered evidence. On, Lisa, once again, you impressed me with how much you've learned about this case. Um, <laughs> but I, I think you, hit, you you touched on the central thing there is that 
protests left uh, Northwestern in a scandal around 2010, 2011. In another case, he was trying to get another guy out of prison and claim wrongful conviction. And prosecutors kind of had enough. And they said they, they were getting the feeling that what he was saying about these witness recantations wasn't exact, that, you know, things weren't being shared. And they, in other words, they had the sense that he was not acting as a journalist either. So they subpoenaed all of his records and all the students and everything. And there was this huge national outcry of this is an abuse by the prosecutor of this crusading professor who's freed all these people. But the judge looked at the evidence and said, yeah, I, there's something going on here. And that was the beginning of the end for this guy at Northwestern. Right. Because as soon as they started looking at everything, they they said to the judge, everything he's getting, is it, it, he's just giving to defense attorneys, in this case, attorneys at Northwestern Law School, and he's not and he's not turning it over to anybody. That's not journalism. He's acting as a private investigator for the defense team. On, on top of the fact, on top of the fact that, as you mentioned, he was he was uh, the school accused him of uh, altering evidence and hiding evidence and lying to them. So you're exactly right. It, what was going on at at Northwestern was not journalism. Uh, you know, many people believe it was not journalism, and I. I would I would make that argument as well. And once again, this isn't the only case where this happened, in my opinion, Porter's case. I think right. there's a lot of cases where the journalists are just ignoring whole swaths of evidence, whole sides of stories. It's almost become the, the, the way journalism is conducted in Chicago. And for me as a writer, it's tragic because I love good journalism. I grew up reading good journalism. But mm-hmm. what's happening in Chicago is just, uh, it's, it's, it's really a, a horrible thing to see tragedy journalism just destroyed in this, this hysteria of activism, activism and political ideology. Right. And there's no toleration for difference of opinion or debate. No, um, you're right. They go, at, they go you after see you. With they the internet, after. you know, if you disagree with me now, I don't do that. I I enjoy a good debate. And even if I don't agree with the other person, you know, I can appreciate their position. But I've seen many times where, uh, you know, a lot of really nasty things are said about the person rather than their position. And don't even really contradict them. It just shows you don't have a strong position because now you're resorting to ad hominem attacks on the person, not countering their argument. Yes. Well, uh, uh, part and parcel of this, you know, uh, you know, in the course of writing this book and, and knowing Bill and looking at these cases, I can't tell you how many honest, hardworking detectives I've sat with in, in, in diners, uh, bars, uh, wherever, and they've told me how these wrongful conviction people have just drawn up these nonsense accusations that it, that have destroyed their 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 reputations and their careers, and yeah. and it, it's a it's a extremely vicious vicious movement. 
and uh, you, unfortunately, you got to be kind of aggressive yourself to fight it back. You know, Bill and I have had to really fight uh, to get El Story Simon out of prison. Bill and I spent, you know, six years, you know, working the phones, writing. We created a blog, putting articles mm-hmm. out there, writing books, talking to politicians. I mean, it was one hell of a crusade. Yes. And I have to I have to say, I know you worked on Murder in the Park, and, uh, Bill, you were interviewed pretty extensively. That was a first-rate documentary. Well, maybe. I signed well. up for Netflix just for that documentary, and it was well, I appreciate I, that. I, I, first I, I have to tell you something. I, I, I would just comment uh, this way. Um, the documentary was made by um, a company and an individual and a couple of individuals who are from uh, – they're not from Chicago – and there's a certain political dynamic that is known pretty much across the world about Chicago politics, as it is known about New Orleans politics. And um, I think because they were not, you know, they didn't grow up here, they didn't really know the culture and, and what goes on in Chicago, they missed a few salient points that otherwise would have been in there. Um but you know what? I, I have I've heard this from other people um, um, who have seen this documentary, and they give it you know some high regards, and 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 there are you know some internet uh, uh, organizations that rate these kind of movies, and it gets it gets you know some substantial uh, upgrades. I I think it sort of missed the hard hitting points that otherwise would have, may have been there. Anyway, that's my view. And, and this, doc, this documentary was all rooted in Bill's work. And then in, in mine, right. I mean, you know, we, we had been covering this for a long time before they, you know. But I, I took a, I decided to get out of it. I, and Bill, Bill, and I, Bill, Bill and I both signed on to it and, you know, uh, worked, the, you, know, get, you know, provided them with the materials and whatnot. But yeah, I'd rather not talk about the documentary, to be honest with you. Okay. I uh, can't blame you. Sorry about that. That's all right. No, no, no problem. I, uh... The other side about this, uh, uh, you know, Bill and I have done a lot of this work and this writing, and, and then, you know, journalists call us up, and they quote us, and they, they we send them the research and everything, and they, they never even attribute it to us. You know, they never, right. even, they never, you know, it's like, oh, I found this. And, you know, I guess it's open season, but after all the work we put into this, it would be nice to get at least say, you know, hey, these guys did this. And, but it's no big deal. It's the way it goes. But, but, but you know, just, just to add to a point here, I mean, here's Northwestern University. Um, it like, it, it views itself as kind of the Harvard by the lake in Illinois. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, um, and I don't care if they call me up tomorrow. But um, the fact of the matter is they settle in one of the most egregious um, upendings of justice in, in the history of Cook County for millions of dollars, I'm guessing. Um, and, and the press virtually ignored it. And then in any of the following stories, 
that had to do with wrongful convictions or akin thereto, and some of the same players, they don't they don't even mention mention this thing. I mean, I got to tell you, by Midwest standards, it, this is practically historic uh, for a college um, to cave in on something like this. Uh, I mean, uh, and everybody ignores it. Well, I think that um, Provis really put them in a bad position. In the other case, was that was his name McKinney? Yeah, McKinney case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Boy, you're very shot good. Shot a security guard. Right. Yeah. You're precisely. Um, Thirty years ago. And uh, but Protus put them in a bad position because in that McKinney case, he lied to their attorneys. Their attorneys ended up lying to the court. Well, and and, and this so is that, Marty's point. This is Marty's you know, point. That's, that's where credibility goes. The prosecutors Down had the enough, and 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 ruled ultimately that indeed, um, protest wasn't a, a journalist and therefore protected from any kind of uh, shield laws uh, in subpoenaing his documents. He said, right. "Hey, you're not a journalist at all. You're 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 working for the defense," and and that's what ultimately uh, destroyed him. Uh, but the the you know, story Simon was uh, certainly part of it. Well, and unfortunately, uh, Marty mentioned earlier that after Porter's civil case, our story Simon could have been released. But you know that's one of the uh, it's one of the illustrations of the court system and what happens in one case doesn't necessarily mean anything for another case. So what happened in Porter's case wouldn't automatically help. And I think at that time, Al Story Simon was encountering problems because he had made multiple statements implicating himself, not just a single confession that he had never recanted. Now, again, as I told both of you when we discussed it, I know he was trying to keep his end of the bargain because he was made promises of money and fame and fortune by Protus and or Cialino if he just played ball. Yeah, um, I, no, that, I mean, that's absolutely correct. And I, and I got to tell you, I, I mean, this is one, I, well, let me just, just say very briefly, um, this is an aspect of this entire story that, you know, tends to be very puzzling. And we certainly should have mentioned it, I think, a little earlier that in fact he confesses, and it's a long confession during a sentencing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, you go back to that grand jury material and you see the witnesses who were in the pool that night and what they say to the grand jurors. And you look at the testimony of the students and you see what they're saying. They knew nothing about the case. These uh, witnesses were in the pool, they saw the guy pull the trigger. Um, but you know, it, it's an open and shut case if you look at everything. But you're absolutely mm-hmm. correct. I have to tell you, from a personal standpoint, I got involved in this because I was looking at another case. And I wound up talking to two uh, investigators, uh, retired federal agents, 
um, who knew something about uh, both cases that I was looking I was looking at one case. I go to see them to get their materials, and they say, hey, Bill, we're happy to help you out. We got all the materials here, but you're looking at the wrong case. I come back three or four times. You're looking at the wrong case. I said, well, okay, what case should I be looking at? You should be looking at the Elstory Simon case. I said, oh, what about the – I said, I know nothing about the Elstory Simon case. Why should I be looking at it? It's because a man is sitting in jail for a crime he didn't commit. And then they tell me that he confessed. And I said, you've got to be out of your mind. The man confesses to a, a, a double homicide. He's, he's in jail for 17, 15 years at that point. Um, you know, why should I even look at this? Look at the underlying materials. And I did, and I came away with what I came away with. Well, let, let me jump in here to address your earlier point about how one case doesn't necessarily move into the other. You know, just like the media doesn't want this to really look at this case because it's going to take them places they don't want to go. You know, the, the Al Story Simon confession and his conviction, it was a running joke among prosecutors. You know, everybody knew in the corridors of the state's attorney, this whole thing was a farce and they all knew right. that this shouldn't have happened. But, you know, why it took Anita Alvarez so long to open it, it, it I, I would I would hazard a guess that it was because Bill and I and, and the, the, the filmmakers we were working with picked it up and, and she knew there was going to be a lot of media coverage. And so, the, the, but, you know, there's a lot of, you know, let's say suspicious uh, behavior by prosecutors in this case. And they don't, they never really wanted to open the door on it either. But right. the door, the door, once they opened up the McKinney case, protests got busted uh, you know, and then we we're all screaming about this the Porter case. They really had no choice, but really, if the prosecutor's office was operating with, with the integrity I think that it should have, they would have opened up the case in 2005 after the civil civil trial, and you know right. conducted a review. But 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 there was this terrible delay. Now, as far as El Story Simon's confession goes, it, it, it's 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 you know it's these guys, these these guys came to his house and said, "Look, if you don't cop to these murders, you're going to get the death penalty and or life in prison." Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they had a tape. They had a they had a whole presentation. These were powerful people, and you know, they had this whole racket. Now, it might be hard for some people to imagine that happening, but yeah. if, you know, if you know how a guy from the street, you know, works and thinks and everything, you know, two years, you know. It was a tough call, and he, it wasn't like he, uh, he he didn't equivocate. I mean, while he was in Cook County Jail, he went back and forth on it. He called his friends, mm-hmm. and they said, "Don't do it, don't do it." And he, at one point, he was gonna he he tried to fire his attorney Rimland and hire another attorney, and and that's when Rimland said, "If you don't, uh, that's what he says. What you don't do this, right. then you'll get this." So I mean, it's a very murky little period there. But Bill's right when you when you look at the whole of it, you, it, it just adds to the depth of the of the the, the it adds to the magnitude of of what a terrible thing took place in this case, the injustice. Right. Right. Yeah. Devine should have, you know, taken that first grand jury and told Protus to go pound sand. And I, and as far as I can tell. 
Porter's attorneys never filed anything with a court for a court to review any of this stuff. They just went no. to Devon, and Devon no. opened no. the doors and said, and set Porter free. Well, without well, he anything. Retried, he could have retried Porter. He could have put him mm-hmm. on a bond. He could have put him on a, a monitor. He just let the guy walk off death row. And then right. in 2003, right. they let four more guys. I mean, Chicago is like, uh, Chicago, they've opened up the, the death doors to death row, the prisons. And anybody who says, you know, anybody who comes up with a cockamamie story that they were co- coerced or whatever is getting out. And not only are they getting out, they're becoming multimillionaires. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, again, you know, Marty has a range on this that I don't have. And, and there have been, as a consequence of this case and an earlier case, um, there have been multitudinous cases that have been paraded before judges in Cook County suggesting that, you know, recantations of original testimony were false, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, as Marty puts it, a, um, what is that you call it, Marty? A revolving door? No, it's an industry, um, a industry. Um, and and you, after Porter, <coughs> oh, excuse me, there, there's just been a multitudinous defendants who have been popped out on recantations from prison, and um, judges have uh, heard the recantations and have said, "Well, you know, well, let's uh, let this guy out or whatever." And then this guy who's let out comes back with a civil case, and and files, you know, a multi-million dollar lawsuit and and Marty knows more about this than I do. Um and and millions, literally millions of dollars have been this is a famous Ford Heights 4 case in Chicago. I don't want to get into it, but it's ugly, it's terrible, it's awful. It's yeah. thick to read it. Um uh, they got what was it? 36 37 million dollars. And they're all out. I mean, one of them I think is deceased now, but but right. uh, they became multimillionaires. And and they were all if you again, if you look at the underlying record, you're going to see information in there that would suggest that they were, in fact, the killers, and a jury got it right. But the, let's talk about um, on Al Story Simon's case. Uh, this kind of illustrates the modus operandi of uh, Protus and Cialino. Uh, how did they get witnesses? to name Alstory Simon as a shooter when Alstory Simon had maybe one brief mention in the record, the police record, because he was with Jerry Hilliard and Marilyn Green that night prior he to Jerry not. and Marilyn going to the park. He was not with them now, that night. He was with them, he was with well, them he earlier, was with earlier in the evening at the parade. Right. Yeah, in the daytime. Correct. Yeah. That's what I meant. That That was what I was referring to was it was earlier in the evening during the parade and then he and his wife left and one o'clock in the morning is when the shooting happened. Correct. Yes. So 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 one explanation is that um well I mean I, I know what the explanation is. Again, um pre trial on Porter, trial of Porter, post conviction 
proceedings of Porter for two or three years. There is never, ever an utterance anywhere in the underlying record, not one word, that there may have been a man there by the name of Elstory Simon. He's not implicated anywhere in the underlying mm-hmm. record. Okay, so um, as as I think Marty can speak to this uh, more than I can, under this kind of machine and mechanism that has taken hold, what what these uh, defense attorneys do, wrongful conviction attorneys, as Marty would put it, um, they plumb the backyards of all these areas where these crimes have been committed, and they send out investigators um, to take statements from people. What do you know about the killings that happened on this and so? What do you know about this? What do you know? Well, you should talk to Sharon. Now, I've I've got several of these affidavits in my book, and they're silly. They're inane. But to answer your question, after the pretrial, the trial, post-trial, about three years later, we have a defense attorney who starts plumbing um, the field for um, recantations. And he's the guy who comes up, and it's in my book, with these silly explanations. But there is one person out of all these plumbing that is going on, and she happens to be the mother of Marilyn Green, and she says, um, you know, I had a, a bad feeling about uh, um, Elstory Simon that night, and I believe he, he may have pulled the trigger. That comes about four years after the conviction, and there's nothing up to that point. Okay, so they jump on it, and they plumb that, and they, they look around, and, and they wind up getting one guy tailored to um, modify his original um, – affidavit and it's not even that meaningful and they know that there are again that there are five other witnesses out there who were in the pool that night and they saw porter pool they had their telephone numbers they they knew where they were and they didn't go out to look for them protesting Mm -hmm. to it okay so it's clear that they were just looking for something to drive this thing home get him out and cash in for few million dollars, which didn't happen. But, 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 but Lisa, to, 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 to get to the core of your question, in, in all, so many of these cases, it's not hard to go into a, an extremely poor, as they say, disenfranchised neighborhood and to 15, 20, 25 years after the fact and, and say to somebody, hey, you know, if you change your statement or you make this statement, you know, you'll help this guy. And you know, there's 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 going to be a lot of money. There's a big lawsuit pending on this. You know, I mean, it's it's really not difficult mm-hmm. at all to get a witness recantation and a false one. And you know, each each month in Chicago, we're hearing about another case where there's another extremely suspicious witness recantation. And so, I mean, this is not a hard thing to do. And then there's the, the gang pressure. If you don't, if you yeah. don't play ball and recant the, the thing, I mean, you, you have to live in these neighborhoods that are run by these gangs. I mean, you, why would you risk your safety and your your well or your family? You know, even the night of the murder, William Taylor was telling the detectives that he didn't want to talk about it because he was worried about his grandmother because he mm-hmm. knew these guys knew where he lived and his grandmother lived, and he knew that what they were capable of. 
So, you know, that's not hard to get people to recant at all. It's not hard to re- get them to recant at all. Oh, no. And especially if if you go out and, and tell them, hey, we have evidence that he's innocent. Yeah. The state's case was total BS. He's innocent. We need your help. Yeah, and but, then but, people but, are going to try to But more importantly is, is but, the – the opportunity to perhaps cash into some some Correct. big money. And that, um, that is what Curtis and Cialino were promising. I mean, precisely. Um, they, in this assignment, they promised to get her son and her nephew out of prison. They promised her money from a book deal. But, but, but you, you know right. I mean, this, this is just not, you know, idle talk. Again, if you go into the underlying record, you will see where David Protest, uh, the former professor at Medill, um, went to one of the, well, uh, the state's um, key witness in, in the uh, Fort Heights 4 case, mm-hmm. which is a terrible, terrible case, and, and, and posted um, in a handwritten note on his door, he wasn't at home at the time. They went to his house, he and a couple of the, his students, and posted a note and says, hey, you know, um, I, I, I tried to get a hold of you today. I came to your house. You weren't here. Um, you got to call me. He says, you know, we're, uh, things are about to change on the Fort Heights 4 case, um, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, we would like you to, um, uh, we'd like to talk to you about this. And by the way, you better change your testimony because the movie and the book are coming out pretty soon. And, um, you know, the train is leaving the station. Um, yeah. And you know what? This this, this guy, um, and he came from a very impoverished background, um, uh, he, he was a man of, of God, so, so to speak. And and he told protests. He says, you know, why would I do that? I'm not going to do that. Then, by the way, they follow up that with with a, another letter from a uh, Northwestern Medill School of Journalism stationery saying the same thing. You better conf- uh, change your story right now because you're going to you know miss the train. There's big money in this thing. Then mm. he he still says, I'm not going to do it. Then protests bring Cialino into a uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken where they meet this key witness in the Fort Heights 4 case, and Cialino is posing as a Hollywood producer. And he shows them a camera. Right. Right. Then and he, he says, well, there's millions of dollars in this for you if you change your testimony. I mean, what the mm-hmm. hell? Right. Now another thing that I I kind of got from the book, and I it started me speculating from both books. Walter Jackson was Inez's nephew, correct? Right. Yes. And he was incarcerated with Porter. Yes. True. Do you two suspect or think that there was some collusion between Porter and Jackson? Oh yes, absolutely. There to get absolutely. this whole ball rolling, yeah. and then they yeah, then Porter pointed. Oh, it's in the book. It's in the book. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's, that's I, how it's see, I didn't pick up that, but I was I was thinking. I wonder because at first I thought, where would Protus and Cialino and the students ever even get this? Protests track Jack. But in, yeah, in, and and then they talked to each other on the phone. 
Right. And right. and 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 Jackson agreed to go along with the program. And then Jackson later recanted that testimony. I, these recantations are—they're just nuts. But I, I don't quite understand where they originated from. Where they come from, Marty? What? Yeah. Uh, they come from. Uh, they come from the deep heart of the most crooked city. That's where they come from. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, the whole thing was cooked up in the joint. Uh, uh, but one thing you have to remember is. When when the inmates, you know, the inmates there's a there's gossip in the prisons. Everybody talks. When when the when the inmates saw the Fort Heights Four get out, and then when they saw when they saw Anthony Porter walk out of death row, they all knew from the street that he was guilty, and they all knew. Mm-hmm. So every, every yeah. guy on death row, every guy in prison now knows. It, it doesn't matter how how bad the case against you is. You can get out. You just gotta have the right attorneys and the right story and the right timing, and you and they're mm-hmm. they're getting out. So once they saw these guys get out, they they were all working in the joint to come up with plans and come. You know why don't I claim this? Why don't you know I'll claim that? And they have you got DePaul, Northwestern, uh, a couple of big uh, law firms, huge law firms, University of Chicago. They all have these innocence or wrongful conviction departments, and they they right. throw these files at the students, and they start pouring through them, and they say, "Oh my God, he fired with his left hand! Oh my God, you know, uh, you know, oh, some, some nonsense, right? Some nonsense." Right. And the kids and the professors are like, "That's good, that's good. Run with it, run with it. See what you get." But you know, there's something much much more sinister going on, and so. Uh, you know, Porter saw, you know, everybody in the joint knew that once Fort Heights 4 got out, that, 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 that things were changing, that the criminal justice system was crumbling in Illinois, and they could take advantage of it. See, it's not, it's not just that they got out of prison. Most of them become multimillionaires. Right. So, it, it, you know, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. That you know that you could commit that, some of the crimes these guys have committed, the vicious nature of these crimes, and then they turn around and they become multimillionaires. It's it is a level of corruption that that is is hard for almost anybody to fully uh, imagine. Now, does the state of Illinois and city of Chicago actually pay judgments? Because here in Louisiana and New Orleans, especially. If you get a judgment against NOPD, Sewage and Water Board, City of New Orleans, you're going to be on a list for decades. They have judgments going back 40 years that have not been paid. Chicago, Every Chicago. five to ten years, they'll offer five cents on the dollar Chicago has with no settled, interest. Chicago has settled $650 million. They settle, but do they do they write the checks? Oh, they sure do. They write. They get. Yeah. Oh, they do. Okay, okay. Yeah, because yeah, most states four. you can't you can't seize municipal property, so you have no way of enforcing a judgment. So they have no incentive to pay. <laughs> uh, well, it's different in Chicago. So. Okay, all right. See if that's. And I've I worked in the Memphis area as well, and the city of Memphis was the same. Yeah. 
so, but they do actually write the checks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's Chicago's biggest industry right now. So, <laughs> does uh, Illinois have a wrongful conviction statute, or is it basically on a negligence, lack of probable cause basis? They don't. They don't have a statute, but they have a, a bogus state agency called the Torture Commission. And this commission ah. is comprised with all these people sympathetic with uh, with the wrongful conviction people, and they they were created in 2009. They can take any case that's been settled, long settled, and they can arbitrarily resurrect it. So they're 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 dumping all these cases back into the courts that are 20 and 30 years older, and the prosecutors, you know, it's hard to retry a case when half the people are deceased. And so it's now like a factory to get these guys out. And we've, you know, I'm, I'm vice president of the uh, Fraternal Order of Police now. and we, we're, we're trying to fight this, this commission. But Chicago is, the magnitude of corruption in Chicago is, it, it really is hard to describe. And this, this torture commission is, is, is one of the most unconstitutional bogus agencies I've ever heard. But, you know, it, it's it's rubber stamping these claims and guys are getting out all the time. Uh, and Sorry, well, I, I would ju- just jump in at this point with a very obscure um, aspect of this whole thing. But without getting into deep Deep details. You know, there there was a policeman in Chicago who was charged with abusing uh, some prisoners in a, in a to get confessions out of them in a in a kind of a well known case here in Chicago. <clears throat> and as a consequence of that, um, that policeman had a name like Smith or something. <clears throat> um, so after. Uh, this fabled case and this award, uh, a huge amount of money award, monetary award, um, this whole industry, this legal industry, industry was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was sending private detectives down to say, were you in that area, detective area, when you were arrested? Um and and they would they would counsel them say yes yes I was in area two what happened uh, well <clears throat> they put a typewriter bag over my head now having said all that I and a private uh, detective who used to be a federal agent and his later years became a private detective he and I went down to see uh, Anthony Porter after he had been freed after he had been pardoned. And he and he had beaten up his shortly after he got out he beat up his girlfriend rather mm-hmm. viciously and he had a court appointment he was not in area two he had nothing to do with the uh, alleged wrongdoing that the police were visiting upon certain uh, defendants he was nowhere near there and so and this is 19 years. After he's been convicted by a jury, he's now out. He's been pardoned, but he's but he's in in, uh, in the courtroom on another charge. I go up to him with this ATF agent, retired, and I said, "Hey, uh, uh, Tony, we'd like to talk to you." 
And he said, what do you want, man? And I said, uh, look, you've been pardoned by the, the governor. Um, you can say anything you want to. Nobody can, uh, you know, reconvict you on this charge. You know, there's a guy in prison who, who didn't commit this double homicide. Why don't you just stand up and say, hey, look, I did pull a trigger that night and walk away. You're going to be fine. There's going to be no problem. You've been pardoned. Um, he said, man, you know what he said to me? He said, man, damn people put a typewriter bag over my head. Now, this is 19 years later. He was not in mm-hmm. Area 2. He had nothing to do with this cop. But but clearly, as Murray had pointed out, all you got to do is say the right thing. And, and right. you're going to get you're going to get a hearing. I mean, Jesus, good God. I mean, he, there weren't even any typewriter bags around when he was convicted, for God's sakes. Anyway, very nuanceful. That, I mean, that is, I, I, I can imagine it's, uh, I think it goes on to a degree everywhere. Um, I'm sure it is, but but I got to tell you, there, there, there's, there, this is almost a deep-seated cultural thing that's going on here in Chicago. What, 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 I mean, it's what, a what, way of life. It, it's, it's, hold on, Bill. Bill, hold on. Here's what it is, Lisa. Because I think we're getting close to the show. Here's what happened in Chicago. This is this is what happened in the the late 1960s. We had these riots in Chicago and these battles between the police and the anti-war activists. And there was a there was a, a segment of those protesters who were very extreme. They were very enamored of Marxism or whatever revolution. They were all talking revolution. Some of them splintered off into different the Weather Underground, the Black Panther movement, the Black Liberation Army, whatever. Some of them mm-hmm. were very very some of them were very violent, like the Weather Underground. They were bombing. And, and and these these really radical groups by the end of the seventies, really nobody wanted anything to do with them anymore. They they they, they didn't appeal to the mass audit, the mass groups that they'd hoped they would. So, a lot of these extremely radical people, they they started they they went back to you know like the Weather Underground. You know, one of the founding members of the Weather Underground was Bernadine Dorn. She. She was hired by Northwestern Law School. I mean, here's a woman uh-huh. in the seventies was running around setting off bombs, saying "kill the pigs." She's going to Cuba. We're talking about a, you know the Marxist revolution that's going to come and all this stuff. But you mm-hmm. know they lost that they lost that politically violent revolutionary, and a lot of them just moved into mainstream. They moved into the law. They moved into journalism. They moved into education, and you know that that very fervent. Uh, extremist ideology t- took out a new form, and 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 by the end of the 70s, the main form was to attack the police, attack the police, right, and to, and to vilify the police, to vilify the police, no matter what, and it's been wildly successful, wildly successful. They've, uh, you know, these these groups. Uh, you know, really have made a tremendous amount of money. They've really hurt the criminal justice system. And uh, that's basically this this whole wrongful conviction, I believe, this hysteria, it's sort of the culmination of those 68 riots that never ended. I think you're right. Well put. I think, yeah. 
Very well put. And, and and if we don't put a lid on it, if we don't contain it, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. We we are in a lot of trouble in this country. I mean, uh, you know, why would you hire Bernadine Dorn to educate children, students? And where do the, where do these students get this intensely anti-police, anti-criminal justice sensibility? You know, the, the, these these uh, you know, some of these wrongful conviction law firms were representing the weather underground when they were on the run. They were, they were representing the black, uh, the, the black Panthers. They were mm-hmm. representing violent revolutionary groups. So, you know, how is that social justice? How is that fighting for civil rights? You see, there's a, in Chicago or in the United States, you can get a lot away with a lot. If you're claiming that you're fighting for social justice. If you claim that you're fighting for civil rights, but that the proof of that is in your actions and not in your rhetoric. And the truth of the matter is, day in and day out, it's the police who are fighting for social justice. Each day they go in and, and there's bad apples, no doubt about it. They screw up and there's some, you know, they they commit crimes sometimes. But by and large, the police are the ones who are trying to fight for social justice, not these radicals. Right. You're exactly right. I, I mean, I was I was raised uh, to have the utmost respect for police officers, and you know, if I'm doing something wrong, that's my fault, not their fault. Yeah. And well, if they catch you know, me doing it, <laughs> that's on me, not on them. And well, uh, you know, uh, l- l- let me interrupt for one thing. I'm not a guy who uh, who always wanted to be a policeman. I kind of wandered into becoming a policeman. And uh, in my youth, I was, you know, pretty left. And I, I, I probably would have believed a lot of these narratives a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more easily than I do now. And, you know, I'm glad that I became a cop because I, I, I don't really want to be a part of something this, cruel and this you know this this depraved and i i see these kids in the courtrooms with these guys and and looking at these cases with such you know this look on their face like this isn't this the greatest thing that we're fighting this and they they just Mm -hmm. can't see they can't see what's really going on and i just think it's i think it's really tragic but uh yeah you know and i'm not saying there aren't bad cops believe me but I, what I've seen in this this movement to free these people that in, in this Porter case, I mean, what kind of person, you look at Porter's rap sheet, why would you, you know, who would want this guy running around, you know? Uh, right. He, this, even the people in the neighborhood were terrified of this guy. And what's so mm-hmm. great about getting him out of fuck, out of prison, uh, you know, on, a tr- on such a bogus story as this, What's to ce- what's really to celebrate here? What is there to be proud of here? I think gaming and, 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 and his rap sheet was just unbelievable. Not only his rap sheet, but he spent eighteen or nineteen years down in uh, Joliet and various other prisons in uh, Illinois, <clears throat> awaiting the executioner, which never happened. But 
the whole time he was in, in prison, um, and I'm not going to even go into it, but what he was doing down there in a lonely cell would would make one um, a civilized person throw up if you knew about it. It was just unbelievable. Um, and 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 the reprimands that that, that were triggered by his activities in, in while he was there in 19 years, it's 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 a small dictionary. It's unbelievable mm-hmm. what he was doing. Um, but but also before he uh, was arrested, um, the the day they arrested him, by the way, he, there was a warrant for his arrest for having kicked a man's dog at high noon. Um, mm-hmm. uh, two blocks from the uh, uh, pool, park pool, where he mm-hmm. uh, shot these two people. Um, he had shot him. He, he kicked a man's dog, and a man objected to him kicking his dog. And he says, yeah. "Man, you stay right there." He, he disappears, comes back out with a pistol, and 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 shoots shot his guy in right the head. head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it was a miracle because and the bullet the bullet hit the guy's skull and didn't go through right. and went around and came out the other end. Right. I think um I think I remember reading he had turned his head right before because he had the muzzle up against his his head, but the the victim turned his head in a way that it kinda it only grazed, it didn't actually Right. Right. Have a contact wound, and that is it is a miracle. Um, but but again, getting back to his rap sheet, the guy was called in on every major violent crime you can imagine, including seven murders that had occurred in his neighborhood. He was called in by police um, as a suspect. Uh, they never indicted him, or wanted, they never went anywhere. But he's called in seven times for murders. But but it goes way beyond that. It's it's kidnapping, it's rape, it's armed mm-hmm. robbery, um, and and his rap sheet goes goes six or seven pages, um, and and you know where are the students on all that one? Where's protests on that one? My God, right. you want to be your investigative reporter? You want to balance this out? I mean, good God. No, no. The lack well, of sympathy, the lack of sympathy in the in these wrongful conviction people for the victims of these crimes, is also really really chilling. I mean, in the end, this poor woman and this guy were shot like dogs in a park for no reason, mm-hmm. and the entire and they, criminal justice system worked to put him away, and now he's out walking around free. And this, and you know, you, I, I know that I get to know the victims of a lot, the family members of a lot of these crimes, and you know, people just don't imagine what it's like to have a loved one murdered. I mean, you, you don't ever get over it. It's just, and then to be dragged through court, time and time again, and hearing after hearing, and watch these wrongful conviction attorneys parade around as if this is the greatest thing since, you know, that this this right. is wonderful. The kids all starry eyed. I mean it makes you really it makes you think that this you know, this country is absolutely hopeless sometimes. And uh the thing the thing about Porter is too is you know, he was so well known by every cop in that district because he was a career stick up man. 
And on the days that the old folks would get their social security checks, he was running around robbing them. And a lot of times he'd rob them and just beat them, even though he didn't have yeah. them. So, yeah. so I, when the word was out, I be- the word was out. Go ahead. I, I believe William Taylor witnessed an incident. Yes. Where he, he robbed and beat an elderly person. Yes. Yeah. And and he told so Fiolino the- about that, I believe. Yeah. And when when he uh, so when the word came out that night that you know Porter's been fingered for these two cops, all the cops in the district knew that he had committed this shooting a few weeks earlier, and so they know here's here's a crazy crazy violent criminal, he's he's gone berserk, and mm-hmm. everybody knew we got to get this guy before he kills somebody else, and right. so and so. You know, uh, so it, it, nobody said anything about El Story Simon to any detective anywhere. You know, it was all right. order. From the moment the shooting occurred, William Taylor and Henry Williams were carrying one, Jerry Hillard down. They were helped carrying him down to the wagon, and they're whispering the name Porter to each other. From, mm-hmm. from the very first moment, it's Porter, Porter, Porter. Correct. And that's why that is that is one of the most baffling parts of this is that it it was you know there there wasn't any framing I mean there wasn't any evidence because of the nature of the crime Porter got rid of the gun or had his uh, accomplice get rid of the gun never identified the accomplice Uh, there was no physical evidence tying him to the murders. You know how are how could the police have framed him when? And I don't think he ever confessed. No, he didn't. No, no, no. He, he never so confessed. Allegations of torture are totally irrelevant. No, well, absolutely. Let me, let me, that that me, was a no, kind of no, a non-issue. No, no, let me address that. Let me address that one. Surely, because that, uh, uh, you know, if for for more than a decade, no one mentions torture. Then uh, mm-hmm. the attorney for the detectives. That no uh, calls up Porter's attorneys and says, "Well, we're not going to settle. We're going to go to court." And what case do they have? And that's when you first hear Porter say, "Oh, they tortured me. I didn't confess, uh-huh. but they tortured me, and I wouldn't give in." I mean, that's uh-huh. how reflexive the torture allegations are. When in doubt, right. claim claim torture. You know what I mean? Correct. No physical evidence. No signs of abuse. No motive to commit it, nothing. Sixteen years go by, and boom, you can claim torture, and nobody bats an eye. Nobody bats right, an and eye. because because it can't be refuted by that time. Right, and because you know it's just like the it's the claim everybody makes, and mm-hmm. you know the detectives, the two of the most upstanding guys, and you're ever going to want to meet. You know, how would you like to be a detective or a police officer and be accused of torturing somebody? I mean, right. what a thing to have to deal with. 30 years of chasing the worst predators and trying to protect the public, and now somebody just says you tortured somebody and and, and your, your reputation is ruined. That's why the detectives fought the case so much, because they knew that if, if Porter got a settlement, they'd be spending their entire Retirement going from one one civil deposition to another because that's Correct. how it works. Correct. 
but actually, I think initially the uh, the detectives. I mean, in in one of the interviews in the documentary, um, I mean, he even got teary eyed. Did we get it wrong? Yes. How could we have been wrong? And you know, this isn't somebody who wanted to to do something. Uh, he actually felt remorse that he might have gotten it wrong. He didn't. Yeah, right. That, that, and a that's, solid a stunning guy, difference. that's a stunning difference. Once again, Lisa, you really have a good grasp of this case. That's a stunning difference between the media and the detectives. Because mm-hmm. when the detectives turned on the TV and saw Porter was getting out, they, they were like, they were traumatized. Did I almost put an innocent guy in prison? Even a guy as dirty as, as Porter. It was very tough. Right. So they, so they went back and looked at their investigation. But then you look at 2005 in the civil trial when they proved Porter's guilty again. Did did any reporters say, oh, my God, I might have got this wrong? Oh, my God, my writing might have helped put an uh, uh, innocent man in Elsory Simon in prison. They didn't bat an eye. Guys like right. Well, well, double, well, but, but beyond, beyond that, Marty, Zorn comes out with that column. That's what I was just getting to, Bill. Uh, that that's, that's exactly. Huh? Sorry. Boys uh, play nice. <laughs> that's well. That's that's exactly right. Why didn't Eric Zorn in two thousand five put put his head down and say, "My God, what have I done?" The way the detectives did. He didn't bat an eye. He comes out with a column the next day saying, "How dare." Walter Jones declare Porter innocent. How dare you? I mean, Porter guilty, about, yeah. Yeah, you do talk about whatever. Anyway, I'm getting tired. I'm sorry. Oh, that's quite all right. Um, no, it it is. It's an emotionally charged, and it, it, it's a good point. They don't really seem to have conscience. Um, they, they know what they're doing is wrong, but they're doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, that's the only explanation I can ever I can ever come up with. It is it is ten oh one Chicago time, and I got to tell you, yes, sir. I got to get up very early tomorrow. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm well, I'm going to well, wrap everything for, up. For inviting us. Um, uh, I really I really enjoyed this, well, and I, I mean, appreciate all do, of your what, what insight. Time you, what what time do you normally shut down? Uh, um, well, we go we go off live into archive uh, after two hours, so at ten o'clock. So we're oh, in our archive time. But oh, okay. This okay. is such a a fascinating subject; it's easy to kind of lose track of time. So, but <laughs> I I appreciate you joining us, and this is a fascinating. You're asking us to come on subject, and I'm I'm glad, uh-huh. Mr. Simon's civil claim has been resolved and uh, that he can now get on with his life and uh, has he gotten his uh, exoneration? No, I think that's still pending. Um, Okay. I I, I, I actually don't know where that is. I I don't think uh, there's been a final ruling. Um, But uh, anyway... Well, thank you both for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having us, and I appreciate it. And um, uh, like I say, i got to get up very early tomorrow. Um, thank you, sir. 
Are, are you on the? You're on the same time zone, right? Yes, sir. Ten o'clock. Yeah. Okay. All right. I really I enjoyed it, Lisa. Thank you. Yeah, Y'all have a really great good. night. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, Michael. Absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. stuff there, and you know those two hours just flew by. Mhm. They did. They did. So, um, so if you are one of those people that tends to think people are innocent, what did you? I don't know whether you're. You know, I mean, I know what your position is on a lot of these cases. Right. Um, but what did you think? I mean, just looking at it, it seems like they sent an innocent man to prison and, you know, really backfired the whole premise of the cause. Yeah, exactly. You just summed it up. Beautifully. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, there's no giving that man his time back. So hopefully moving forward he can live a... You know, a better life, but you know, we always look forward right. to seeing that. Right. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do my little outro. I want to thank Sounds everyone good. for listening to Clear and. Okay. Con- <laughs> <laughs> Let me start again. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or at our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. We hope you'll join us next week for Episode 12, State of California versus Kevin Cooper. In June 1983, Cooper was being held in a California prison in Chino under an alias. On June 2nd, he escaped from the facility, which was meeting security, Late on the night of June 4th or early on the morning of June 5th, Cooper entered the home of Doug and Peggy Ryan in Chino Hills. Doug, Peggy, their daughter Jessica, and family friend Christopher Hughes were murdered. The Ryan's 8-year-old son, Josh, was the sole survivor. I hope you'll join us next week. We'll be talking about the evidence against Kevin Cooper, including his claims of evidence manipulation and evidence tampering. And thank you again for joining us tonight. Y'all have a good week. Yes, absolutely. We'll see you next week, ladies and gentlemen. Uh...